I will never forget where I was in college. It was Taco Tuesday at school. And I got the call that I had received the job on the campaign and they were going to pay me $32,000 a year. And I (laughs) went screaming and I was like, I have made it. This is amazing. I'm making $32,000. Like this is going to be great. And what I ended up doing was I ended up living out in Arlington with a friend and we lived in a one bedroom apartment outside of DC. And we still laugh today about how did we ever make it work? Welcome to the Early Career Moves podcast, the show that highlights remarkable BIPOC young professionals killing it on their career journeys. I'm your host, Priscilla Esquivel-Bolcha, Latinx career coach, corporate consultant, daughter of immigrants, and lover of breakfast tacos. Meet me for a coffee chat every Friday as we either dive into a special guest story or I'll share my own career gems. If you're a BIPOC professional feeling lost in your career or just need a dose of inspiration, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Um, it's Priscilla. Welcome to February. I can't believe we're already in the second month of the year. On today's episode, we have a really special ex-MBA classmate, Remy Onstad, and she's going to be talking about her career transition from the nonprofit politics space into the HR strategy business world. And she did make this transition with her MBA. So that's definitely a part of her story. Um, But a lot of what we talk about is, you know, what are those valuable nonprofit experiences that, you know, are transferable to the private sector and are actually super valuable. She also talks a little bit about what life was like in her 20s living in D.C. and temporarily New York. I'm working in the nonprofit space. All right, y'all, enjoy. Hey, before we head into today's episode, I want to encourage you to follow us on Instagram at ECM Podcast. Also, head over to ecmpodcast.com where you can get freebies, read the latest ECM blog post, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. And if you or someone you know is looking for one-on-one career coaching, you can sign up to work with me on my website. Lastly, if you're a big fan and supporter of the show, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we can reach other people. Okay, let's head into the show. Okay, everyone, I am so excited to welcome Remy Onstad to the show. Welcome, Remy. Thank you, Priscilla. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So before we dive into your career story, I would love to hear a little bit about you, your personal background, just so that our audience gets a sense of where you're coming from. Sure. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. and Colorado. We moved to Colorado when I was 11. So I've had that experience of living in in two different places while growing up. Right after high school, I ended up going to Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. and And I was a political science major. And after graduating college, I then went and jumped on a presidential campaign. So worked on Bill Richardson's presidential campaign in 2008. And from there had a did 10 years in nonprofit management, political fundraising and campaigns before taking myself back to, to business school. 
Yeah, such a cool career with so many different, you know, changes, ups and downs, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, take us first to that time when you first joined a campaign. What was it like joining a campaign and working on one? Gosh, it was, there were so many times where I said, what am I doing? You know, I, I'll never forget, Priscilla, is that it, I, and I have to say is that I was, able to find work on a campaign because I had the opportunity in college. I did a semester in DC, a spring semester in DC, my junior year, ended up interning at the Democratic Governors Association and found my niche in political fundraising. Really found that was motivating to me as being able to you know, really think through how are we going to raise money for a candidate or an organization? And after that, it was prime time, right? It was the 2008 elections. I was um, had talked to a mentor and she said, you know, you really want to get on a campaign where you're going to be able to do a lot really quickly. And some of you may not remember even Bill Richardson as a presidential candidate. Uh, candidate, but it was, he was then the governor of New Mexico. And it was a chance where I wasn't on a big campaign. I wasn't on the Clinton campaign. I wasn't on the Obama campaign, but it meant that, you know, I had to learn really quickly of what it was like to be on an underdog campaign and be scrappy and resourceful and ended up going to the Iowa caucuses, which was our last, our last stint there. And then shortly uh, after the Iowa caucuses, I remember sitting on a plane and getting a phone call from my boss and they said, you know, we've loved working with you. We can't, we can't pay you anymore, but if you'd like to go to New Hampshire, you certainly can. (laughs) And I wasn't in a position where I could just work without, without a salary. So had to quickly leverage my network to, to find a new role, but that was being forced into political world really quickly where you just have to, you know, you don't know what the next day is going to look like a lot a lot of the times. Yeah. And people have to be comfortable with, you know, things changing. And, you know, if your candidate wins, then great, you might have a job. But if candidate loses, there's that whole period of figuring out your next step, right? Totally. And that's, I think that's something that I've learned really quickly in my career was being comfortable with ambiguity, and then also having to be really resourceful. But I'll have to say is that those people that you work with on campaigns really early on become family because you're working together for a really long time, for really long hours, and you're working really hard. You're going through this marathon sprint together. And people that I worked with when I was 22 are still close friends today. And so at that point in your career, what was really driving you in terms of joining a campaign? What did you really care about when you were choosing a career? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, Priscilla, my dad had worked in in government, and that's what he was doing when we were in DC. So I, I had an understanding there of how you make an impact in the community around you. And that's what was really driving me was being able to make an impact. And that has followed me from throughout my career of how I think about the next step of what type of impact can I have here. Mm-hmm. And I also think it was all about gaining experience quickly. So being able to work with leaders or work with elected officials, you know, really just be able to think about, okay, what is going to take me to the next level? And I did that throughout my political fundraising career from the Democratic Governors Association all the way to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee working there in 2010. So really thinking about, okay, 
how can I keep building on the skills that I've had or the skills that I've gained to take it to the next level? And now that you're working at HP and so many years have gone by since you started in campaigns, what are skills that you developed during that time that you still think about or use today? Yeah, I'm currently at HP and I'm in a rotational program. So it's three eight-month rotations throughout HR. And something that has carried me through all of that is having those client-facing skills and relationship building. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, in order to be successful, you have to gain people's trust. And so that was something that I didn't really realize was one of my secret skills. It was something that I could lean into when I didn't know the answers, but it it was that. It was building relationships quickly, being client-facing in many ways, and then also just having to be scrappy, right? Is that in my early career, I was at organizations that didn't have all the resources. So you had to wear many hats and just being able to raise your hand, listen more than you talk and get to know the landscape. What are the issues that are the people are facing and how can you be strategic in helping them solve those? I'm curious, you were in DC for a long time as a young professional in the nonprofit space. And DC has a high cost of living. It can become really expensive to live there. How did you manage that lifestyle of being like a young professional in DC, which sounds super fun, but then also working in the nonprofit sector? Yeah, that is, you hit the nail on the head, Priscilla. So (laughs) I will say is that, you know, I will never forget where I was in college. It was Taco Tuesday at school. And I got the call that I got that I had received the job on the campaign and they were going to pay me $32,000 a year. And I (laughs) went screaming and I was like, I have made it. This is amazing. I'm making 32,000. Like this is going to be great. And what I ended up doing was I ended up living out in Arlington with a friend and we lived in a, when we first started, we lived in a one bedroom apartment out in mm-hmm. our, out, outside of DC. Mm-hmm. And we still laugh today about how did we ever make it work from being, from living in that, she slept in the couch area. I slept in the bedroom. Sometimes we traded, but I wouldn't give up those opportunities for the world of what it was like to be young in DC, because I think that city is full of young people who want to make a difference. So there was that. And not even that, Priscilla, is that I I left DC. I did one stint in DC and then ended up moving to New York. And I took a pay cut to move to New York, actually. And I was working at the American Museum of Natural History, which was even more of an expensive city to be living in. (laughs) So tell us about how that happened. Like, why did you decide to do that? Yeah. After the 2010 midterm elections, I said, I'm done with fundraising. I want to go explore another area. I had this itch to move to New York. I'd always loved the city. Where I went to college was 45 minutes outside of New York. So I had family in that area as well. And I wanted to go do a different type of fundraising. So I actually did worked on special benefit events for the museum. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was an amazing experience, but I found myself not being able to grow quickly in my career. Like it was a large institutional, it was a large institutional 
you know, advancement organization. Mm -hmm. I was never going to gain the skills quickly to keep moving up and going back. I was actually recruited to move back to DC for an organization called Enroll America. But when I was looking for jobs again back in DC, I was saying, I want to have an impact at the museum. It was all about status. The donors, it was all about status. Yes, there were amazing things happening at the museum. At the end of the day, my funders and donors, they cared about where their name was on an invitation. Like, I just, I I couldn't. I was recruited to do something very exciting, which was to to work for Enroll America. And, you know, I just said, I have to get back in the game. This is the final, this is the final leg of the Obama administration. And Enroll America was working on one of the administration's key pieces of legislation, which was the Affordable Care Act. Very cool. Okay. So when you were at the museum, you started to feel a little bit removed from like your mission and and like making an impact. The New York decision was more about a personal desire to experience living in New York City. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I learned a lot about myself in my two and a half years in New York. So the same reasons why I left DC of it's a small city, you run into people all the time. You know, I felt like I was ready for the next step of a much larger city was actually the same reasons why I moved back to DC because while New York is still one of my top favorite cities in the entire world, I felt like I needed to get back to my community of get back to a city where I felt like I had a stronger community. So I did miss running into people in in restaurants or on the street and felt like I needed to get back to where I was going to have an impact. So tell us what you did at Enroll America and then what short shifted for you and had you start thinking about applying to business school? Yeah. So Enroll America was a nonprofit organization with a mission of maximizing the number of Americans who enroll in and retain health coverage through the Affordable Care Act. So I joined the organization in the fall of 2013. So after the legislation had passed, but they formed an organization to go out and find the uninsured. So think about the way that they did micro-targeting to find voters in 2008. We used that same type of predictive modeling to go find the uninsured. And to me, it was so exciting, but it was also the fall of 2013. Healthcare.gov had not opened yet. I was leaving an incredibly stable organization, the Museum of Natural History, to go work on for an organization that had really smart people working for it, but we didn't know what was going to happen in that first enrollment period. And it was a roller coaster to state to say the least. You know, we went through those four enrollment cycles, Supreme Court hearings, constant battle in the news. But I have to say is that what we've learned, if you look at what people care about in healthcare these days, it's about having your pre-existing conditions covered. And that was really it's harder to take away something from people once they have it. I still see the benefits of Enroll America today, even though the organization no longer exists. As I mentioned, we sunsetted as an organization. And during that time, I really found that I was extremely interested in change management and more of the human capital issues of the organization. I, while at Enroll America, I was doing fundraising and business development. So I was working with national healthcare systems to 
to create business development opportunities. So I like that strategy part. And that was something that I hadn't seen before. And then also seeing a full life cycle of an organization also taught me a lot about the strategic part of when you're doing so much change through an organization. Mm -hmm. And I had a very good friend who had gone to business school and she said, you know, I think you might like it. And I was like, I don't know, you know, I've done fundraising for so long. And she says, just think about it for a second. And I, the more I learned about what it meant, what type of courses were at business school, it really excited me. And I was also realizing that I was going to hit a cap in fundraising where it was thinking about what's next. And I wanted to add some more meat and potatoes to my skill set and my resume. So I did. I decided to take the leap and go back to school full time. And that was to walk away from income, 401k, everything after 10 years in your career. It's a scary thing, but certainly well worth the investment. Yeah, I I had a similar experience where I realized a little bit later, I would say than your average MBA student, that I wanted to go down that path. I definitely didn't go to college thinking, oh yeah, one day I'll get my MBA. And so it is a interesting moment when you're like, okay, I think I'm going to do this. It's not a it's not a decision you take lightly, basically. No, and it's so funny talking to everyone about their own admission stories. I was sitting down for the GMAT for the first time the day after or like the week after the 2016 election, which was so scary. I didn't know what was going to happen with my job. It obviously wasn't a lock that I was going to be going to business school, but I leaned into my story and my experiences to help make myself seen as a strong candidate for business school. But yeah, it was a lot of prep, a lot of tears, a lot of just hard work and retesting so many times. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. The GMAT was a year-long struggle for me, for sure. Oh, yeah. And I ended up switching from the GMAT to the GRE like right before mm-hmm. application deadlines. And through Oof. that journey, I really found you find the right place for you. I had applied to other schools. And it it's so funny because I had dream schools listed and then just found throughout that process, you know, these are my people. And that was important. And it goes back to that community for me of where I was going to be able to have an impact. And it's just funny looking back on that process of where I thought I wanted to land. And then what I found out through the more I learned and where the right place was going to be for me and never being happier of where that path takes you from where you started Mm -hmm. to where you eventually end up. Totally. Yeah. And so when you got to business school, I'm sure you were bombarded with the multiple different career path options that you could pivot into with the MBA, which is very special that you can do. But it can also be really confusing in terms of which direction to pursue. How did you recognize the path that you ultimately ended up choosing? Yeah, I think for me, it was at the I was somewhat focused. I'll say that in my essays, I wrote about healthcare. And then I also wrote about human capital strategy roles. Um, And I think it, it required doing a lot of listening to hearing people's experiences, trying to find that right match. And it ultimately ended up with a case competition where it was sponsored. HP was one of the sponsors for it. And I found that this is the right fit for me. As in my early career, I had done a lot of traveling, a lot of just a lot of like 
things changing very quickly every two years, especially in my career. And I was looking for an opportunity that was where I could go and gain exposure gain experiences and exposure quickly, but find a place ready in industry where I could, again, make an impact, but have some stability. Because I have to say is that coming out of business school, I was 34. I wanted to think about the next chapter and while still jumping into a new career, but also thinking about some stability for myself as well. Yeah. And so I want to talk a little bit about what the misconceptions are about HR. I worked in talent recruitment for a school district and then ended up doing a lot of work around employee engagement and retention and culture. And I learned through that that there is just so many different areas to play in when it comes to human capital strategy. And that can mean so many different things. And so what would you say is maybe the biggest misconception that people have about HR? And tell us a little bit about what you actually do now. Yeah, I think the biggest misconception about HR is that they're there to police and roadblock because typically people's first interactions with HR, you know, or things that they remember is about onboarding or they just, they just give me my paycheck or disciplinary actions. And that is maybe one facet, but that is certainly not HR. It's an extremely strategic role. So where I'm at right now is, as you mentioned, is I'm at HP and I am in something that's called their HR Management Associate Program, which is an is a 26-month rotational program for people who have gotten their MBAs or their master's in HR and are looking to take really career switchers and looking to take, get a lot of experience and exposure quickly. So I am currently, I've been through my first two HR rotations. So I was an HR business partner supporting in, I was an HR business partner. And then also I did a eight month rotation as a business compensation manager. So thinking all things compensation and benefits. And now I'm currently in a two month business rotation where I actually sit within the business um, working on actually a, a software implementation project for them. So really exciting to get to play in a space where in a company where HR is, there's a lot of different options for roles that you can have. And so taking advantage of, of those opportunities. Yeah, I would say it really depends on the kind of organization and how they use their HR. And so when I think about, for example, a startup, they usually don't even have an HR or anyone who does that until much later. And so I think for people who are interested in this and doing it strategically, you have to be very careful about, you know, understanding whether the organization is really being strategic about the work that they're doing. Yeah. And that's what I've found. It certainly depends on size. You're right. Totally. Especially when I was on a campaign, HR was just about onboarding and offboarding and making sure you were paid. Mm -hmm. Whereas being at a large tech company now, it's your, your intellectual property and your competitive advantage is all about your people, right? Because, right. and that, that has really led into, and I find this a lot in the tech industries where they have a much they have the ability one and then the the to invest in the like size and scope of what they of their HR departments mm -hmm. and I think you have to look at a lot about how they are investing in talent and where HR sits within 
the organization. If it sits in operations, it might be seen as more of a compliance mm-hmm. versus are, is your chief HR officer reporting directly to the CEO? And so as an HR business partner, you basically have internal clients that you have to work with, different stakeholders. What does that look like for you or when you were in the rotation? Yeah, it was like drinking from a fire hose (laughs) while being an air traffic controller. Um, So I supported three different groups within our global legal affairs organization. So three different executives and their organizations. And what I loved about the role is being really close to the business. So I find that is an extremely important part of HR is being, is understanding what the business issues are because You're there as a strategic partner to help business leaders work through strategic issues that are related to their people. And I also, there were no two days look the same. So whether I was dealing with a team organization transformation, so thinking about how to staff their teams in the best way or what the best org organizational design was to make them, Mm -hmm. to help them be the most effective to the tactical of, okay, we need to hire somebody in this location, or we need to, we need to look at our headcount reports or stat or our budgets for the following year that it was great because no two days looked the same. And you really had to learn how to become how to get to know the HR organization very quickly because you're like the, as an HR business partner if you think about it in both the H the the air traffic controller way but you're also you're on you're helping business leaders with frontline managers of solving all of their people issues that come out so mm-hmm. it can be a, it can really lend itself to extremely interesting days Yeah, I can imagine. Great. This has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for being with us. I can't wait for people to hear your story and just to get inspired to pursue your path. Awesome. Thank you, Priscilla. It has been such a pleasure. And if anyone wants to chat further, um, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Happy to connect. Hey, are you thinking about changing careers? Then you need to head over to my website, ecmpodcast.com and sign up to get your free 20-page guide that I wrote with you in mind. I wrote this guide to help you change careers and get really clear on what it is that you want to do next. Career clarity is key to a career transition journey. All right, can't wait to hear what you think about it. Have a great week.